New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Most people have a vision for their lives that they're not pursuing, half-heartedly pursuing, or pursuing with all their strength, yet somehow falling short. This vision can be modest or grand. It may involve breaking free of a destructive habit or finding a truly healthy relationship. It might have to do with making a real difference in the world or helping to lead an organization to extraordinary success. What about you? What do you want? The answers to these questions and how you may move past obstacles that can block your way serves the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Raphael Kushner. Raphael Kushner has shared his unique approach to personal and professional development with millions of readers in O, The Oprah Magazine, BeliefNet, and Spirituality and Health. He lectures worldwide and is a faculty member of the Esalen Institute, the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, and the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. In addition, he coaches individuals and teams at Fortune 100 companies, governments, religious organizations, and leading not-for-profits. He's the author of Setting Your Heart on Fire, How Now, Unconditional Bliss, and The One Thing Holding You Back, Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection. Join us for the next hour as we explore what our emotions have to do with transformational action with our guest, Raphael Kushner. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Raphael, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, nice to have you here. So I'd like to go back to your, I want to talk about your origins. You, you grew up in, you were, grew up in Northridge, California, Southern California, right? In the San Fernando Valley, yes. Right, yeah. Well, tell us about that. Well, probably the most important thing about it was that it, on the one hand, was a classic suburb, but also was in Hollywood's backyard. So I spent a lot of my childhood either playing basketball, which was my personal passion, reading another one, or mostly doing plays, reading plays, directing plays. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a trajectory early on towards the film business. And also storytelling is one of the ways you worked your way through school. What, what, what was that about? Well, I'm Jewish by background, and I, I guess I was always a storyteller when I was young. And so I worked in a number of uh, synagogues and community centers and tried to make the old teachings relevant by turning them into stories that kids could understand. So I did that over the years, and actually some of those stories were compiled into a book a number of years ago. So that was just, a, a, I guess, a natural outgrowth of my love of the arts and then my connection to heritage. And you wound up going to US, UCSB, UC Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and then on to Reed, mm -hmm. and then back to UCLA. Right. Yeah, I, I was college hopping. I, I, left, I left high school early, and I went to the College of Creative Studies, which was an alternative university at UCSB. Uh, that set me on my way. But 
um, I was disillusioned through my college years because I thought that finally I would go to the right schools and be the only one and wouldn't be the only one who was talking in my seminars or who was on fire with ideas. And it was it was the late 70s when there was a lot of burnout from the ferment of the 60s. And so I didn't find that excitement, um, that passion for not just ideas, but also for social action. And so in the end, I just hopped my way out as fast as I could. So you left at 19, I think it was, wasn't you? I, I graduated from college when I was 19, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then, so then what happened? Well, I had a few different themes running through my life. One of them was I was a teacher. Uh, I also was a political activist. But I still, my great dream at that time was to be a screenwriter and a film director. So I kept angling in that direction for many years. Yeah. So you wound up spending a decade in Hollywood. I did, yeah. Most people who uh, know about the business know that when you're a struggling screenwriter or even when you're beginning to be successful as a screenwriter, you're behind the scenes, you're working on films that never get released, other people's films, until finally you break through and films that you were working on get made and finally you get to make some of your own films. So that was my journey. Uh, you did a movie for Showtime? And I did. I, I wrote, produced, and directed a movie called Sexual Healing, which starred Helen Hunt and Anthony Edwards and Jason Alexander. I did that film as a benefit for a group called the Minority AIDS Project. I figured since most films lose money anyway, we would lose money on purpose and <laughs> donate that money to a really good cause. And So it was a chance for me to blend my activism and my filmmaking. Even though the subject of the film was a romantic comedy, um, still there was a way to bring everybody together who was working for free you know, on their off hours to be part of something that had a, a larger mission. Mm -hmm. And you did some other films as well? And I did. I, I wrote some films, but that was my baby. That was the one yeah. um, that was actually set to launch me, you know, up the ladder um, in the film business and also was the setup for what happened when everything fell apart because the story for many people like me, and they're invisible out there in the world because they're doing other things now, is how you get so close and then in that business, just all the pieces don't fall together. And suddenly, you're not on the top of the rung. You, you can't even get arrested, so to speak. Um, so I was poised after that film, Sexual Healing, uh, to make it in Hollywood. And then that didn't happen, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Not the worst, although I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, so everything crashed in 1996. You had a breakup of your marriage and other things happened. So tell us about that. Well... For me, it was the classic dark night of the soul, and the signature of that dark night, I believe, is that nothing that you could have relied upon in the past was, would work anymore. So, you know, I had a spiritual awareness, I had a, um, a meditation practice, I'd done a lot of therapy, and suddenly when everything fell apart at once, my personal life and my professional life, in, 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 in staggering ways that completely, you know, knocked me out of everything I thought I knew and understood, everything I reached for just fell short, didn't help me, didn't seem like it could do anything to lift the darkness. And, you know, when I'm out there teaching these days, I ask people to raise their hand in the group if they've ever had what they consider to be a dark night of the soul, and almost every hand goes up. So I think that the particulars of each person's experience are, you know, those are unique, but that I think most people can really relate to that time when suddenly nothing's making sense anymore and nothing's working, and that's what happened to me. Yeah. So... How did, when you emerged, how did you emerge from that? Well, I had a mentor who um, said to me, I have a way that you can deal with all of this you know, pain that you're experiencing. And of course, I jumped. I said, what? Tell me anything. 
uh, what, what should I do? And so he looked at me very calmly and placidly, placidly, and he said, how about nothing? How about if you do nothing at all to try to change the way you feel? Which sounded, of course, like torture when I first heard it. Yes. But also something grabbed me because most other people at the time were saying well-intentioned things like it's good to keep busy. Mm-hmm. So I just went for it in my bumbling way. You know, I still had a job. I, I exercised, but I took this dark cloud with me wherever I went. And every time my mind tried to take me out of this doom, I would just reel myself back in and just stay with the experience I was having. And I didn't know it at the time. I wouldn't have had the words for it. But now I can see that I was doing a kind of one-pointed meditation on suffering. Yes. And um, it was... It, it was excruciating, but also there was something about it that was fulfilling because at least it was authentic. It was my real experience. I wasn't running away. And this went on for about six months. You know, I didn't know where it was heading. I didn't know how long it was going to last, but that's what I did. And then one day I had an experience which I can only describe as grace. And the essence of that grace was that my heart just broke wide open. I felt joy and love and radiant bliss while the same rotten and miserable circumstances in my life were still present. And so then I had a new koan. You know, I had to penetrate this. How could it be that suddenly I would feel that way when nothing was different in the circumstances of my life? And that koan and penetrating that koan really led to the next chapter of my life and my work. Yeah, which was? Well, I began to see that... Um, Basically, for me and for everybody else, we're constantly dancing between contraction, which is tensing up in mind, body, spirit against what we don't like and we don't want. That's an instinctive response. And expanding, which is opening up and staying fully present and connected to ourselves and others, which also is what allows us to be connected to spirit. And that there were some simple principles and practices that could help us move easily from the state of contraction to the state of expansion. And as I saw them working in my own life to keep me coming back to that radiant state I just talked about, um, I began to see ways to share that with other people that didn't have a lot of jargon, that didn't cause them to pay lots of money for level one, two, three, and four, and that didn't also ask them to believe in all kinds of things or wear the trappings of some kind of belief or religion, something that you know just about everybody could 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 bring fruitfully into their own life. And so it became my mission to use whatever skills I had creatively to get that across and to help people see how they could do that for themselves. I think everyone has experienced resistance. We all have resistance in one form or another. Um, what do you have to say about resistance? Well, for me, resistance is essentially staying shut down after that first instinctive response where we don't like or don't want something. And so when you think about it like that, most of us are in resistance to one thing or another pretty much all the time, as you said. It could have been something that happened three minutes ago, but it also could have been something that happened three decades ago. We said no to the experience, and that experience is still living within us, waiting for us to accept it and wreaking all kinds of havoc until we do. But what I've found in my work over the last years is that all resistance is emotional resistance, meaning that if it's your mother-in-law or your boss or your kids or the political situation or climate change, if these are the things that cause you to tense up and say, no, it can't be, that really you're tensing up and saying no to how those things make you feel. And so I began to see that recognizing and releasing resistance to our emotions was the essence of what could get us free as fast and smoothly as possible. 
So you you've written about the emotional connection. How would you how would you describe the emotional connection? Well, the first thing that I would say is that an emotion is a message from our brain that is delivered in our physical body. So that's key. In order to feel our emotions, we need to, as someone once said, take the elevator downstairs. Since most of us tend to live in our heads, that's where we're comfortable. So emotions are physical. That's the, the body is the only place they can ever be found. And then the next thing about emotional connection is that to receive the message from the brain that's delivered in the body doesn't mean to figure it out or to have some insight or understanding. That all comes later. But the message is the physical sensation. And to connect to and experience the physical sensation directly, that's what we need to do in terms of our own personal feedback system. That is message received. And when we do that, any emotion dissipates and moves on because that's what they're made to do. What's the difference between that and meditation? Well, uh, sometimes meditation uh, can be very emotionally connected. But often, people who have been trained meditators learn to kind of sit back and mindfully observe things from what I would say is sometimes a safe distance. So I worked with somebody once who was a great uh, Tibetan meditator for 25 years, very skilled, very esteemed in his community, had a very uneasy relationship with emotions, didn't really believe they mattered or they could be useful, didn't understand how they were an essential part of our feedback system. So when he noticed an emotion arising, for him, he did a great meditative job of noticing, but it was from like 100 miles away. And what emotions need in order to release and in order to give us the blessing that they have for us is they need us to be up close and personal. So we need to come toward the emotion, and I like to use the word surf, to surf it in order to really receive that message. We'll pursue that when we come back. I'm speaking with Raphael Kushner. He's the author of The One Thing Holding You Back. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. guest is Raphael Kushner. He's the author of The One Thing Holding You Back. And Raphael, you were talking about surfing. Let's, let's go deeper into that. What, what this, what's the surfing you're talking about? Well, when you think about a surfer in the ocean, there are two things that are moving together in unison very smoothly and quickly. There's the surfer on the board, and then there's the wave itself. Now, when the surfer is relaxed and gentle and exquisitely attentive to the flow of the wave, that makes for a great ride to shore. 
And when the when that same surfer tenses up and wonders and worries what's going to happen to the wave, there's a wipeout. And when the surfer starts thinking too much about the wave that was just there a moment ago, that's another wipeout or what's coming, you know, down the road. And also when the surfer looks up at the cloud formations in the sky and says, oh, that's interesting. That kind of looks like another wipeout. So when you take all of that and you turn it to the subject of emotions, uh, what we can say is that the surfer is your attention and the wave is the emotion. And so in order to connect fully and successfully to an emotion, what you need to do is pay very close attention from as close as you can get to the shifting and changing of the wave as it moves through you. And that's a simple process that anybody can do, but it's pretty much the crucial life skill that no one has ever taught. And until we learn how to do it, we can't get the complete message of the emotion successfully. And also we can't successfully blend the different parts of our brain together. Because what I've found is that for peak functioning, even of our rational minds, we need to be able to, to, to surf in the way I just described. So I wonder, are there any examples, living examples that of, say, well-known people that would be examples of what you're talking about? People who surf well? Yeah. Well, I think that everybody listening probably knows someone in their lives who seems to be able to quickly accept what comes and to quickly notice when they're triggered and they aren't accepting what comes. So whether it's, you know, your, your grandmother or your parent or even sometimes a young child, people have examples of that and they can tell that person because that person seems to be present and at ease most of the time, even in challenging circumstances. But in terms of popular culture, while I can't point to one particular person, I know when I'm watching television, for instance, I can see in someone's eyes that they are self-connected in this way. Because whenever they are, there's a kind of simple radiance that they give off that comes from being harmonized. Because, you know, one of the things in the book I talk about is the glitch through evolution that we've all inherited that that really does put us at cross purposes with ourselves. And people who connect emotionally in an ongoing way have rewired their brain to correct that glitch. And you can feel that in the peace that they exude. Is there a difference between men and women, male and female, in, in, this, in this process? Well, I think there is in a couple ways. One of them is that women are natural-born feelers. Um, they have to be connected to their bodies because they give birth, they menstruate. Um, they, they need an attunement that men don't necessarily need. And men traditionally have been more outward-focused anyway. Um, but that means that on the one hand, women might feel things naturally in a deeper way and men might not feel so deeply. But that difference doesn't speak to a lack in men. It just speaks to a difference in the way that those emotions will show up. So just to give you a quick example, I was working with a policeman who was having trouble because his wife was saying, you don't feel anything, you're dead to the world. And his son had been kicked out of school and she was saying, you don't even care. And I said, well, he was kicked out of school, you're telling me, and on bogus charges. And, and when I talk to you about that, I, turn your attention to your body. Tell me what you notice. And he said, you know, my shoulders are all tense and I feel kind of like a hot flash across my collarbone. And I said to him, tell your wife that. Tell her that. Because he thought that there was a secret club called the Feeling People that he 
didn't have access to and that he didn't also have the chops, so to speak, to join. And what I'm always sharing with people is that we feel differently, each of us, and there's no one better way to do it. As long as you're connecting to those waves as they arrive in you, you're doing fine. So the idea of being present and and uh, asking yourself how you know how are you feeling? That, what's the difference between what you're talking about and what you're doing, and say the principles uh, in, in, in Buddhism? Well, for people who have some awareness of Buddhist traditions, what I would say is that this surfing that I'm describing is really a blend of vipassana. That's an awareness practice, of course, of um, metta, which is loving kindness. And the reason that that comes into play is because really to be attentive in the way I'm describing is to have such a profound attention that it has to be compassionate. It has to be loving. So sometimes when we're dealing with vulnerable emotions, surfing isn't the best metaphor. Cradling is just to cradle with your attention that part of you that is hurting, that needs you not to hold it close to try to get it to change and not to hold it far away, but to hold it in that just so place that allows it to resolve on its own. So that's metta. And then the third stream would be tantra. And not the sexual tantra, but tantric Buddhism in general basically started from the premise that rather than following the ascetic path, that our greatest liberation comes from diving in to life. And so when you're the most full of rage or the most full of lust, uh, there's a great opportunity there for awakening and enlightenment. And so surfing, when it's done right, is really a blend of Vipassana and Metta and Tantra. Yes. And there's other spiritual traditions to touch on this as well. I mean, it's like it's really something that's it's kind of almost universally... Uh, been around for thousands of years this idea right i think whenever anybody is writing and teaching about this material they would be crazy to claim ownership or originality we're drawing from an ancient ancient well and the only thing that matters is how we draw that and who we can speak to in the way that we're drawing it now there are many people who listen to your show who would love to hear about that um, combination of those three buddhist streams but there's so many people out there in our society who really need to connect emotionally for their well-being and to get unblocked who wouldn't be drawn to that kind of ancient language and so my mission has been how to make this simple enough that anybody even kids can learn how to do it for their benefit well, speaking of children, I mean, children often are, uh, in many ways, already there, and, and sometimes they get, and we and we train it out of them. Well, <clears throat> I would say that's true and also not true, and kind of speaks a little bit to what Ken Wilber talks about with the uh, the pre-trans fallacy, how sometimes we idolize children and we don't see what they're also missing. So, what a child does really well is express emotion. And often expressing emotion is an attempt to get rid of emotion. So if I have a need for comfort and you've abandoned me and I'm a child, I'm going to scream as loud as I can and I'm not going to put the filter on. That's a good part. That's something that most of us um, have, as you said, uh, we, we, we've had it schooled out of us. But on the other hand, the ability to turn one's attention with awareness to the actual felt sensation in our body that's something that most children can't do. And w they can learn how to do it at a pretty young age, but until we teach them how to do that, it's not something that comes naturally. 
So since you brought up Ken Wilber, there are a number of our listeners that uh, are interested. I'm wondering, what, what you, what's your perception of Ken Wilber? How do you see him? <laughs> well, um, I don't know Ken personally. Um, I came to his work like most people through reading and it was fascinated, especially those four quadrants. They really got me. Um, I think he's, 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 a, he's a brilliant mind. Um, I know a lot of people who work with Ken Wilber very directly. And I would say that because he's so brilliant, there's maybe a paucity of attention paid to vulnerability and emotional connection in his world, that sometimes there's a feeling like we're on a sacred spiritual mission and we need to buck up. And and speaking of this, and this is not about Ken personally, since I said I don't know him, I would like to address something about the men-women question because men, especially smart and talented and successful men and striving men, they tend to believe that it's weak to connect to our emotions. When I think the opposite is true, in other words, when you're in resistance to an emotion, your life is run by that resistance. You make choices that are about not having that feeling instead of saying yes to everything. So when you say yes to your emotions, it's uncomfortable, it's messy, it can be painful for a short period of time to run away from that into our neocortex, into the supposed haven of rational thought, to me seems like cowardice. And so I think the great courageous humans are the ones who are willing to dive into that soup because they know that that's where their own healing lies. And also that emotions are the nexus between themselves and others and also themselves and spirit. Good, that's well said. Thanks. Uh, so, um, it's, you opened you you have your 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 book is divided up into sections and and you start with getting ready uh, is the opening section and what do we have to get ready for? Well, I called it that because there's so much that people have been told about emotions, and most of it is harmful and negative. So I was trying to clear the decks. For instance, your listeners might be interested to know that five of the so-called seven deadly sins are emotions. And if emotions come unbidden, which they do, we don't get to choose what, what, what uh, emotions naturally arise within us, and they're sinful, then, you know, pardon my French, we're screwed. And that's part of the cultural heritage that we come to emotions with. So I want to get that out of the way and let people realize that an emotion is not something to be judged or feared, but something to be experienced. And once they've got that set and they're ready to learn the practice, well, then we're good to go. What is sin from your perspective? What is sin? To be honest, sin is not a word that is in my vocabulary. Um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't serve me, but what I would say is that what what causes people to sin is disconnection, disconnection from themselves and from others. And so I'm interested in helping people reconnect because I believe that when we are harmoniously connected with ourselves, when the three main parts of our brain are working well together, when we're open and expanded and present, then our natural actions are going to serve ourselves and others. So I focus on connection rather than sin. Going back to the origins of that word, it's like it really means in Aramaic, I think it means missing the mark, missing the point, missing the mark. Mm. Uh, well, so, I, somehow we, sin got created by Constantine. Mm. 
know, and then they, the whole church shifted around and so forth. And so uh, it's just interesting to note that. Well, that etymology is fascinating. I'm really glad that I learned that from you today because missing the mark seems just right. And, and how most people would miss the mark in sin is that they would choose actions and behaviors that they would think would bring them to satisfaction. When in fact, those sins are caused by their running away from experiences that are unpleasant. And so that clearly is missing the mark. I'm speaking with Raphael Kushner. He's the author of The One Thing Holding You Back, Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection. And the website for more information about what the work he does and where he goes and where he teaches, Kushner, C-U-S-H-N-I-R.com, Kushner.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. guest is Raphael Kushner. He's the author of The One Thing Holding You Back, Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection. And the website for more information about Raphael's work is Kushner, C-U-S-H-N-I-R.com. That's Kushner.Kushner.com. And you can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Raphael, I want to go back to the, to the evolutionary connection and, and, and the evolutionary glitch, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what about that? What, what, let's talk about the glitch. Let's talk more about it. Sure. Well, a scientist named Paul McLean many years ago created a, an idea about the structure of the brain through the course of evolution. It's called the triune brain, which just is a fancy way of saying three parts. The first part of the brain that developed over the course of evolution, I'll call the primitive brain. And its mission is to always be assessing your relative degree of safety and danger. It's necessary. It has to function all the time in order to keep us alive. And even when we're not in actual danger of our lives, you know, we walk into a room, is it safe for me to say what I feel? Is it safe for me to communicate with this person? So that's the first level. The second level of the brain that was developed is the limbic system. And that's where most emotions arise from. And when an emotion arises out of the limbic system and it's delivered to the body, as we were talking about earlier, its message is feel me. It wants to be felt. Now here's the evolutionary glitch. The primitive brain can't distinguish between an external threat like footsteps in a dark alley and an internal threat like loneliness or jealousy or grief. In other words, it treats challenging emotions as if they're life-threatening. And that's why we contract when we have them. Our primitive brain is trying to keep us safe from something that it misperceives as dangerous. And the good news about that is that we can rewire our brain to recognize that those emotions aren't dangerous through the surfing process that we talked about earlier. In other words, every time that you are willing to fully feel something moment by moment until you get to that shore, which is expansion, openness, presence, when you're cleansed of the emotion because it's dissipated, Every time you do that, your primitive brain gets the message, oh, 
not dangerous. I don't have to shut down the system the next time that emotion arises. It's also interesting to note that, you know, science is saying we can, we can actually change our DNA. We can actually change uh, who we, who we, who we are. Right. right. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, especially to me, because back when I was growing up in the movie, The Graduate came out, uh -huh, the wow. word plastic was, uh, you know, had, had all the worst connotations. And I never thought that I would ever have positive associations with the word plastic. But over the last decade, neuroscientists have told us that the brain is essentially plastic. And what they mean by that is that it can be reshaped, reformed, remade, not just when we're kids, but throughout our whole life. And so you're absolutely uh, right to bring that up because this rewiring that I'm talking about is fundamental. And what I find over and over is that when people are stuck in any area of their lives, whether it's relationship, health, a career, it's because there's one or two key emotions in relation to that area that they haven't yet been able to find and feel. And once they can find out what that emotion is and then feel it, they rewire their brain and they naturally get unstuck and things start to flow in ways that they couldn't have imagined. So what we can see about resisted emotions is that they are the cause really of just about every negative life pattern. That's because as a part of our unconscious, emotions have one diabolical way to get our attention. They draw into our life people and situations that will cause us to feel the very same things that we vowed not to feel in the first place. And so that's going to happen over and over and in worse and worse ways until finally we say, okay, I give in, I'll feel this emotion. But once we finally do, there's no punishment, there's no retribution. We're just made anew in a way and we don't have the same block and therefore we can move forward and change the pattern. Well, I go back to what you were saying earlier in, the, in our conversation about the idea that when you had your breakthrough, it was like you still had all the problems, still had all the hassles, uh, but you broke through and you had another level of, of knowing. And it's kind of like uh, um, it's that sense that, that the connection between uh, being awake and not awake uh, Anyway, there's something else I was going to say, but I, I lost it. In the well, awareness is the key to all of this. You know, you talked about awake or not awake. You can't connect to your emotions without being aware that they're existing. And it's through your connection to the witness that you're able to surf. And what I find is that in resistance, people not only don't know that there's an emotion there that needs to be felt, but they're also... Um, not generally aware, they're more fused with their experience. They don't have the opportunity to see it from outside. And you, you asked me about meditation earlier, and one of the best things about meditation is that it trains people to be aware. And this process of emotional connection is really a specific application of that awareness. So, so how do we find those emotions that are running us unconsciously? Well, in the book, I talk about a very specific and simple way to do it. And the best way I can um, share that is first to kind of tell it to you in a story and then draw those basic steps out of it. So classic story, a guy comes to me, he's got a book in him. He just really knows he's got a book in him. And he's just, he, he sets up his computer, he's got a great office, he's got time every day to write, but he always finds some excuse to walk past the computer. So uh, he, he figures he's a loser, he's lost, he doesn't have what it takes. 
uh, I say to him, okay, so let me ask you this. If you went forward and actually started writing your book, what's the worst thing that could happen? And he says, well, I guess I would write just total dreck, it w you know, that, that uh, it would turn out I didn't have anything to say. And, and what I had to say was horrible. And I said, okay, well, how do you think that would make you feel? And he paused for a moment and he said, well, I guess I would just feel totally humiliated. And so I had a little twinkle in my eye and I said, great, excellent, let's go to work. So I said to him, I want you to imagine, use every power of imagination that you have, that you actually sat down and started to write and it started to flow well. And uh, chapter, 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 they keep coming. You're getting closer. You're starting to feeling like, feel like I really do have something here. And lo and behold, after some months, you're finished with your book, your, your prized possession, and you print it out and you send it to all the people who you love the most and respect the most and admire. And you sit there waiting for the response to come in. And the first person who calls you is you know, probably the person you respect more than anyone in the world. And, and you say, what do you think? And there's an awful, dreadful pause. And he says, ah, oh, I, I don't know what to say. I mean... This is really bad. I mean, it's worse than bad. It's embarrassing, but I also have to tell you, it's offensive. Now, so I said to him, stepping out of the act of imagination, I said, turn your attention to your body and notice what you feel. And the first thing he noticed was a big contraction right across his chest. And I said, stay with that. Surf it for a few moments. And all contractions release when you surf them. So after just about 30 seconds, he was right smack on the wave of humiliation which was what he had been resisting his whole life. So I said, just surf it, just stay with it. You know, micro moment at a time. And this lasted for about two minutes, after which he said with a sigh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. And even though this may sound simplistic, I can't tell you how powerful that experience was because he rewired his brain. The thing that was holding him back was his resistance to humiliation. And as long as he couldn't allow himself to feel humiliated, he couldn't write his book. After that, he could sit down, he could write, and he realized that the worst thing that would happen was, you know, yeah, it wasn't great, but at least he gave it a try. Here's the key thing about that. Any one of us could have told him that. We could have told him that, and he would have heard it with the third level of his brain, which is his neocortex, the place for rational thought, abstract reasoning doesn't matter. You don't get the message there in a way that can really serve you. Whenever you're resisting an emotion, you have a giant blind spot and you can't trust any of your thoughts about that issue until you feel first. That's why I'm always telling people, feel first, think later. And so out of that story, you get the basic steps, right? Ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen in whatever situation you're stuck, if you were to go forward? See if you can determine how that would make you feel and then use yourself, a counselor, a friend, whatever you can do, since it's not going to be real life, to create an imaginary scenario that just takes it almost to an absurd degree to create enough of the feeling that you can surf it. And then once you've surfed it, the last step I jokingly refer to as repeat as necessary, since I'm not suggesting that everybody does that once and then they're done, but sometimes it's two times or three times. There may be more emotions involved or there may be a bigger emotional backlog that needs to clear, but still doing this process, usually you know, five or six times at the most and with a key emotion is going to start 
uh, releasing what was there and allowing flow and new possibility to enter into the experience. Now we got the image of CPR, you know, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Also, the word humiliation is really interesting because within that word is humility. Mm-hmm. And it's almost the, anti- it's the antithesis of humiliation. So yes. You go from humiliation yes. to have, being truly humble. And- well, it's interesting because before I mentioned to you that I thought it was a crea- it was a courageous path to connect to our emotions in this way. This is clearly the road less traveled. But you know, as Robert Frost also said, the best way out is always through. There's no way around these emotions. So on the one hand, yes, it's courageous to turn into the face of them and say, "I'll surf this." But you're absolutely right also because it takes humility. It takes courage and humility, probably in equal proportion, to be able to say, even though this isn't what I like or what I want or you know, how I envision this to go, this is what's here. And to be able to allow oneself to just dive into and surf with what's here causes us to join with life as opposed to trying to control life. And, you know, the interesting thing about emotions is that none of us get to choose how we feel or how long we feel something. What we get to choose is whether we resist it or accept it. And when we accept it in this active process that we're calling surfing here today, then we create the optimal internal environment for those emotions to flow through us the quickest and the easiest. And also, we serve, it serves as a magnet to attract those people, resources, everything else that, that is needed. I mean, that's what I find. That's what I found to be true. Right. Flip sides of the same coin. If you're resisting emotion, you keep attracting the thing that's going to keep you stuck right, until right. you recognize that it's an opportunity to connect. Once you connect, you're so right that the things that seemed so difficult, like mountains you had to push the boulder up, It's not that the work still isn't required, but it's as if the wind is now at your sails and you're going downhill instead of uphill. Yes. And it's never over. It's like you're not there, right? You're never there. No, there is no there. I know that Gertrude Stein said that about Oakland, but we can say (laughs) that about the spiritual uh, and personal growth path. As a matter of fact, I love the quote from Suzuki Roshi who said something like this, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as an enlightened person. There's only an enlightened moment. And an enlightened moment is one where you are in complete connection to what's going on within you. Good old Suzuki Roshi. Yeah. Love him. I'm speaking with Rafael Kushner, the author of The One Thing Holding You Back, Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is Raphael Kushner. He's the author of The One Thing Holding You Back, Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection. And I want to read something from the book. It's a chapter on addiction and compulsions. It's, Addictions and compulsions are strategies for emotional disconnection. They lose the majority of their power once consistent emotional connection is established. So let's talk about addiction and compulsion. And also, I was interested to know that there's a story that you had about overweight, Nancy's story. Mm -hmm. It opens that chapter, actually. Yeah, you know, the whole issue about eating and why it's so difficult to overcome those challenges is because you have to eat. And so every day everybody is faced with how they're going to handle that situation. So it was a good place to start. And also because certainly issues around eating and obesity are epidemic in our culture. But the main thing about addictions and compulsions is that willpower doesn't work. That's number one. Because anytime you try to change your behavior with one part of you and another part of you disagrees, has a different agenda for you, it temporarily goes underground but it gets its revenge sooner or later, and usually sooner. So with willpower comes pushback, and that's not gonna help us get over our addictions or compulsions. What is going to help us get over our addictions and compulsions is a really specifically applied kind of acceptance. And so I talk a lot about this in the book. The key is to start out with something I call done deal delay. And what that means is this, Anytime you have a compulsion, let's say it's for a candy bar, there's a switch that goes off in your brain that says, I'm having that, and the deal's been done. So it doesn't matter whether you're going to have it uh, in one minute because you're just going over to the cabinet, or whether you have to wait five hours until you can go buy it because you're off work. You've already decided it's going to happen. And so with done deal delay, what you say is, okay, maybe I'll have that. But just for a little bit, I'm going to experience with what arises in me when I'm in the maybe, maybe not mode. And so in doing that, the first thing that happens is that you find yourself very present to the compulsive urge. Gotta, gotta, gotta. That's something that can be surfed. As long as you have that awareness that we were talking about earlier, you can turn that attention to it and just let yourself feel micro moment by micro moment as it surges through you. And sooner than you would imagine, it releases. It doesn't mean that that sets you free. It means that ultimately it puts you in touch with the emotion underneath that the compulsion is trying to protect you from. So let me be clear about this. That primitive brain we talked about earlier tries to keep these emotions at bay, but it's not entirely successful. So it needs reinforcements. The best reinforcements that it has are these addictions and compulsions. So when you start to surf that urge, so to speak, you begin a process of unwinding that compulsion or addiction until you get to the root. And once you can connect to those emotions in the way we've been describing today, you do uh, eliminate the, the motor, so to speak, for the addiction. But the key thing here is that it has to be a no-fail zone. And what I mean by that is, let's say you decide, I'm just going to try for a minute to be with and to surf whatever arises in the maybe, maybe not. And let's say you get 20 seconds into it and you say, forget this, and you take a bite. It can't be, therefore, that you failed. Because in fact, there's great information there. What happened at second 20 
that was too much, that overwhelmed you, that flipped the switch of your awareness. The next time you get to that second 20, with that understanding, you're probably going to be able to get through. And so you go to a minute, you go to two minutes, to five minutes, and ultimately to a day, two or three. But the key is that underlying this is complete acceptance. So when someone comes to me, for instance, and says, I want to quit smoking, I say, I want you to know something right off. I don't care whether you quit smoking. I'm not going to judge you if you don't quit smoking. I don't know what's best for you, ultimately. You're here because you would like to quit smoking, and I would like to support you in doing that. But there's no should involved. There's no way you can fail. There's no way you can disappoint me. And could you perhaps take on that idea with yourself? Could you create this zone of no failure, only learning, only new opportunity? And so what happens is we get really curious about everything that is within us that is giving rise to the urge. And instead of just scratching the itch, we're paying close attention. And that's what drops us down into the emotions that we need to connect to. And that's what begins to unravel everything and allow us not to be free forever or even for an hour of that addictive or compulsive urge, but to have choice, to have adaptive capacity, to feel that when it arises, we're not uh, in lockstep with it. We don't have to react. There's space there where before there was just fusion with the urge. I'm thinking I'm reminded of Suzuki Roshi and Tassahara and the story of a, a young woman who was having real problems with addiction and particularly to drugs. And she heard about Tassahara as a place to heal. And so she went there and um, she got to speak with uh, Roshi. And um, he, didn't, he didn't say anything. He just took her and, told, and took her over to a little uh, hut and said, stay here. And, and basically, uh, and left her there, and she was fed every day. So, but basically, that you know, she she stayed in that hut. She could go out, and you know, but she was there, and there's no training, no teaching, no no lectures or anything else. And she was there for eight months. And uh, at some point, she uh, went back to him, and he said, "Good, it's okay." You're fine. <laughs> and it was, again, there's no, it was like, again, just the, the space that was given, the acceptance, and of course, the energetic that was there, present for her, that she could just, you know, be in, and deal with whatever she had to deal with, whatever that was, how it was for her. But just, again, it's that spaciousness, I think, allowing someone. Right. And, and the key is, is that what keeps an addiction or compulsion going is we go to sleep. So when you eat what you're not really, what's not best for you, when you take a drug or when you smoke a cigarette and you know that's not what you really want to do, it's because a part of you is going to sleep. And so this process of surfing that we've been talking about today is really a process of waking up. It's waking up to what is, but moment by moment by moment. And one of the things that I love to tell people is that strictly speaking, there's no such thing, for instance, as grief or loneliness or longing or jealousy or rage. These are static nouns that we use as a convenience to describe a dynamic process that goes on within us. And that process 
For instance, if you're dealing with sadness, one day it might feel literally that your heart is breaking. Another day it might be a, a, a hole in the pit of your stomach. So since it's never one thing, and since everything is always changing, as long as you're awake and aware and connecting to what is in that moment, then there's freedom and then there's choice. So once you learn how to surf in this way, use what in the book is called the two-by-two two process, then you have a tool, a practice to help you stay awake. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to do it, you know, great out of the gate. It doesn't mean that you're never going to go to sleep. But the more you wake up, not as a goal, not as like, I am now awakened, as we were talking about before, there's no there there. But as long as you wake up enough to know that in each moment I am actually free to make a choice instead of having a reaction or a habit, building on that is what strengthens you to be able, in the face of those compulsions and urges, to say, I hear you, I get it, I surf you, I'm with you, and I breathe into it for a moment and realize, no, I'm going to make a different choice. So it's the, the act of choosing to remain awake that leads to the healing that comes from this process. I'm interested, Rochelle, in, in, in doing this work over the years that you've been doing it and uh, your travels and so forth. I'm wondering, how have you personally changed? How have you personally transformed? How do you see yourself now? Well, it's interesting because it's about going full circle. When I was about 12 or 13, I used to say that it was a goal of mine that a person could sit next to me on a park bench and we'd have a conversation for 15 minutes and that that person would walk away and say, wow, he really gets me. Back then, I think that was about wanting to be liked and approved of and appreciated. Uh, and now I still have the same goal, but I think I have that goal after all these years because the greatest joy in my life is complete accompaniment, being with someone so fully that they feel like there's nowhere they can go that I won't go with them and vice versa. And so some people come to, to sit with me and they want to quit smoking like we've talked about. Other people... We both see what's there in the moment and we realize we just need to look into each other's eyes and follow the flow of energy for an hour. And other people, dancing arises. And so I think the way I've changed is that more and more I've become willing and able to, in, to, to let go of my idea of what is supposed to happen in any given situation and even in my life as a whole and embrace what does happen when I, going back to what we talked about earlier, courageously and humbly show up for what's there. Rafael, I want to thank you for being with us. It's been great speaking with you. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Rafael Kushner, author of The One Thing Holding You Back, subtitled Unleashing the Power of Emotional Connection, published by Harper One. And if you'd like more information about Raphael's work, you can go to his website, Kushner, C-U-S-H-N-I-R.com. That's Kushner.com. Or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and I'm wishing you well.
This is program number 3303. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.